Well, by the Christmas of 1996, uh, our Dodge minivan was now 11 years old. It had 140,000 hard miles on it. Uh, it had suffered mercilessly over the years as the church's fleet vehicle for high school retreats. Our engine had given up the ghost. On one retreat in particular, the oil pump went out. The engine started making a, a, a loud noise, and the youth pastor said, well, the way they were going to deal with that is just turn the radio up louder. <laughs> At any rate, our oldest daughter was heading off to college, and we didn't have funds for a new one. Well, as our family tradition goes at Christmas, all of my siblings gather in the early afternoon and evening at my parents' house on Evergreen Circle, where they still live. And uh, when it came time to open the gifts, we were shocked and surprised to discover that my parents had written us a check for $15,000. It blew us away, totally unexpected and unannounced. And this was just a lavish display of their love that went over the top. And it it paid for the lion's share of the 1997 Dodge Caravan that we're still driving today, 15 years later. (laughs) No doubt each one of you could also recall uh, the most wonderfully extravagant gesture that someone has made in your life, a touch of love that maybe changed your life, uh, an expression of appreciation that uh, was unforgettable, something that said, I love you in a special way. Well, we're in the third of our final um, week of series of Advent messages that we've titled The Greatest Christmas Gifts. And for over a thousand years now, the church has been celebrating Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, as, as a way of focusing on the real meaning of the holiday, as well as to practice the spiritual discipline of waiting which is what Advent is all about. So far, we've learned that the greatest Christmas gift of real hope is that things don't have to stay the way they are. We've learned that the greatest Christmas gift of real joy is that Jesus changes everything. And today we're going to discover that the gift of real love is that Jesus loves us and welcomes us back into relationship with the Father. We'll conclude by celebrating our candlelight Christmas Eve service together this Saturday at 4 o'clock where we'll talk about God's gift of real life. And you could invite friends or family if you'd like. There's invitations for the service there at Guest Central on the table. You can pick some up on your way out if you'd like to invite someone to join us this Saturday at 4. Let's just welcome the Lord's presence as we look to His Word, though, today. Lord, we are humbled and grateful for the way You've moved in our lives. We We begin by praying the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. And Lord, today we do. We bless your name uh, for the life and the love that comes through Jesus, his sacrificial death and resurrection. We bless your name for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the down payment that everything you promise is going to come to pass. We bless your name for your favor because the curse of the law has been broken in our life, and everything that is yours is now ours. We bless your name. We bless your name for health and soundness of mind that enable us to gather, and we bless your name because of the security you afford us in Christ against an uncertain future. And now we pray, bring your kingdom among us in the ways that you know we need. Give us an ear and, and a heart that hear and understand your word to us today in your name. 
Amen. So it was the day after Christmas, the pastor of the church was looking out the window that, uh, at their outdoor nativity scene when he noticed the baby Jesus was missing from among the figures. Like that. Well, immediately he went outside and he recognized a little boy from the church family with a new red wagon. And in the wagon was the figure of the infant Jesus. So he walked up to the boy and said, Hey, Victor, where'd you get the little baby Jesus? And Victor says, Well, I got him from the church. And the pastor says, Uh-oh, um, and uh, why'd you take him? And Victor said, Well, you know, about a week before Christmas, I prayed to the little Lord Jesus, and I told him that if he gave me a red wagon for Christmas, I'd give him a ride in block. <laughs> So, you know, everything we have comes from God. The red radio flyer wagon that maybe you, like Victor, got when you were a child. Maybe the van or the car that your parents or a relative's generosity enabled you to buy. And everything else that passes through our hands and our pocketbooks comes as a gift from God. The Apostle Paul framed this worldview this way in 1 Corinthians 4 when he said, asking rhetorically, What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why boast as though you accomplish something on your own? But there is one gift from God to us that exceeds and surpasses all other gifts in value. And Advent is the time of year when we celebrate God's lavish gift of love in sending to us His Son, Jesus. I'd like to read you what the Apostle John has to say about this gift It's found in John's Gospel, the first chapter, verses 1 to 3 and 14. Before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive and is himself God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. And Christ became a human being and lived here on the earth among us, was full of loving forgiveness and truth. And some of us have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Heavenly Father. And so Jesus, who was fully God, who existed in the ageless past, in the glorious, intimate fellowship of the Trinity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus, who created everything that there is, stepped out of eternity at that first Christmas and came to the earth. Theologians call this event the Incarnation. I love how Eugene Peterson a New Testament scholar who's translated the Bible in a version called The Message. I love how he spins it when he says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus, the creator, who regulates the universe by the power of his command, who who names every star, who sends lightning bolts on its way, who says to the sea, here, this far and no further, This Jesus, the ageless God who has no beginning, who has no end, he was born as a helpless baby who could not speak, who couldn't eat solid food, and who couldn't control his own bladder. You know, today, when rulers and royalty travel around the world, they're accompanied by their bodyguards, they're surrounded by photographers and world um, uh, news reporters, uh, there's often a flourish of bright clothes and, and flashy jewelry and media and promotions. For instance, when Queen Elizabeth last visited the United States, reporters were delighted in detailing the logistics that were involved. 
4,000 pounds of luggage that included two outfits for every occasion, a morning outfit just in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma, and a, a, a white kid leather toilet seat covers. No exaggeration. She brought her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. In contrast, God's visit to the earth took place when a nervous, frightened teenager gave birth to a baby boy in a manure-filled hillside animal shelter. That's the way it was. She was attended to by her nervous, clueless husband and a host of animals. She had nowhere to lay the newborn king except in the trough for the feed for the animals. And you think about it, a, a donkey could have stepped backwards and ruined the whole thing right there. I mean, that's how vulnerable our king was. I'm prone to ask, why? Why would he do it that way? Why would he do it at all? Why did he leave the splendor of heaven to pitch his tent among men? Why did God stoop to the lowest of positions and humble himself to be born as a baby under the crudest of circumstances to an unwed mother? Why? Why would he do that? Well, the Bible tells us that there is really one compelling reason, and that's because he loves us. Jesus was moved by his great, unending love to come to earth so that he could make a way for us to come back to God. In this sense, the Christmas story is really a love story at its heart. When you push through all the jingles and the time-honored carols, the trees and the tinsel, the eggnog and the parties, the, the lights and the lawn ornaments, the crafts and the cards, the wrapping and packing to travel, when you push your way through all of that stuff at its heart, the Christmas story is really a love story. I like how the Bible describes this in the letter of 1 John, the fourth chapter. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, friends, this romance, this, this romantic story, this love story begins in eternity past when God existed in relationship in the Trinity. The Trinity was the center of the universe. There was perfect completeness in the love that existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, you know, real love creates a genuine openness and desire to share, doesn't it? Real love does. There, you know, have you ever thought about, like, like when you've been in the moment and you get so caught up into something that you just, you just have to share it with somebody? Let, let me spin it this way for you. Maybe you're alone on the beach or, you know, in a park or at a concert or a, a play, maybe watching a game on TV, something like, like, just takes your breath away, like it's amazing. Maybe it's the sunset or the simple song of a, of a, of a bird or a falling star, the laughter of a child. Maybe an amazing comeback by your favorite team. Maybe it's a, a beautiful cello solo or whatever. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I wish he or she were here. You, you know what I'm talking about. You, you just wish somebody else could share that moment with you. Well, some of the best things in life were meant to be shared. I, I have a, a, a just a deep conviction that that's the case. And, and God has wired us that way for community. 
That's why those of you who are single long to eventually find a mate and share life with someone. That's why those of us who are married often long to increase our joy by having children, if it's possible, because we want to share that joy. That's, that's what's the, like what's the, the glue that keeps a club or a team or a, um, an interest group, uh, a blogging community. That's what, that's what keeps them glued together. That's what even keeps the church together is this desire for shared life. And so it is with God, because it comes from Him. Overflowing with the generosity that comes from real love, God desired to share the joy of that love. So then He created the first man and the woman, Adam and Eve, and He placed them in a garden paradise that was unparalleled in beauty. You know, if you think about the most beautiful place you've ever been to or seen, Eden had it beat hands down. As beautiful as where you've been or imagined to go someday might be, Eden beats it. And God says, it's all yours. Every bit of it. Enjoy yourselves. And then he said, you're free, totally free to enjoy everything that I provide with one caveat. There's one tree there you you can't eat of, but everything else is yours. Uh, They're totally free. And I think it's interesting that God didn't make puppets or robots nor were they programmed to act and react in certain prescribed ways because he wanted lovers who out of their own will and volition would respond to his overtures of goodness and grace and love. And because his heart was so grand in, in making people this way, uh, God also took at the same time an incredibly colossal risk, the risk that the overtures of his love could be rebuffed and rejected. How long had God been planning to do it this way? Well, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us an insight in Ephesians, the first chapter. We read this in the message translation. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Verse 11, long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us and had designs on us for glorious living. You see, we were the focus of his love. Long before the world existed, long ago before the world began, he'd already decided that it was worth taking the risk. Now, sadly, many of us know the unfortunate turn in the story, don't we? Satan, in the form of the snake, tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness. The same temptation, mind you, that he's getting, uh, tries to get all of us to believe to this very day, that God isn't good, that God isn't for us. They ate that forbidden fruit, whatever it was, in a willful act of rebellion against the goodness and love of God. And at that very moment, all of human history changed. And I suspect, just my opinion, but I suspect that part of what broke God's heart at that moment was Adam and Eve's betrayal of his love. The consequences of this betrayal were catastrophic. The Apostle Paul framed the changes in the cosmos this way in Romans 5. When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race 
His sin spread death through all the world, so everything began to grow old and die for all had sinned. And so now men and women are born separated from God uh, through their nature and through their choice. And, and his love remains like at a distance from us. How tragic that is. Nothing we do in our own strength or our willpower or merit or gritting our teeth and through sheer determination, nothing can bridge the chasm that now exists between us and our beloved. An inseparable chasm. And then the Bible is quick to begin to record uh, this sad succession of man's downward spiral into sin and depravity, separation from God within the next few chapters of the Bible. It's kind of like the nuclear meltdown at Three Mile Island. The world imploded in a heap of sin. And you can read about it right there in Genesis, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, right after the fall. What do we see there? Well, anger and murder and idolatry and hatred and greed and violence and polygamy right there after the fall. But the glorious truth is that while the sin spiral continued... God didn't give up. His love won out over his judgment. And we read about it first with Noah and then with Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and then Joseph and then Moses and then Joshua and the judges and all the way through the kings and the prophets. We see that God faithfully pursued a people whose hearts would be for him and share in the intimacy of joy and love. And then the Bible went silent. God's voice was silent for about 400 years between the Testaments. And we read that uh, suddenly there was an explosion of communication again. And, and Paul framed it this way to the Galatian church. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Galatians 4.4 God himself took the initiative to bridge that gap that existed between the lover and his beloved. The gap that we could not cross. And so God visited the planet in weakness and vulnerability, relative obscurity in the Incarnation. And then the God-man baby Jesus grew up. We've seen in the last several weeks that Jesus then launched his ministry with, with that wonderful announcement that God's kingdom had arrived. And he communicated in his words and his works God's inexhaustible, never-ending love. In his stories, a woman found a lost coin, a shepherd found a lost sheep. A father was reunited with his lost and wayward son. And in these words, Jesus was saying, I love you. I am for you. I'm searching for you. In fact, I run to welcome you back into relationship with the living God. And then in his works, demonstrations of power, he forgave the sin of the broken. He healed the lepers and the blind and the sick and the deaf. And he even raised the dead. He fed the hungry and he he restored to sanity and rightness those who were oppressed by the enemy. And in these works, he was saying again, 
I love you and I want you to have the real life of my kingdom. That's my desire. In his words and his works, he was communicating God the Father's never-ending, inexhaustible love for all people everywhere. And he left no doubt that in God's kingdom, there are no undesirables. Everybody counts. Everybody's worthy of dignity and respect. And then came the exclamation point of the story when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul framed uh, God's demonstration of love this way when he said in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see, as it were, the crowning display of God's lavish love. And you know what? He's not quit pursuing people, all people, in every culture and in every age since. He doesn't give up. And that's good news. He keeps pursuing. Most of us really don't perceive of ourselves as very lovely. Uh, we, we carry around in our mind and heart a long list of features that we're not terribly proud of or that we deem unattractive. We, we, we put together our resumes, and frankly, they're not very impressive. But yeah, the, there are this predictable list of barriers that stand in, squarely in the path of our return to God. Why we refuse to hear Jesus' voice of welcoming us back into relationship with God. Some people say, well, I have no real need of God. Well, I've heard that a lot. I kind of think that at its heart, what people usually mean is they perceive themselves as quite happy without God. Uh, But what I think they fail to realize is that our greatest need is not happiness per se, but rather the forgiveness and real life of his kingdom. That's what really matters. And it takes a proud person to say, I don't really need God. Fact is, we all need forgiveness. When the lights are off and the curtains are closed, if we are honest for a moment, we would all have to say, we'd freely admit that our past is littered with stuff for which we need God's forgiveness. Things we've thought, things we've said, things we've done. Besetting sins and habits, often hidden. Mistakes of judgment. Poor choices that we've made. Things that fill our heart. Maybe uh, uh, the appetites or emotions that run amok and make us do and say things that we later regret. Things we wish we could go back and do over. Press the magic reset button, as it were. If we're honest, all of us have a long list of that stuff. We all need God's forgiveness. Everyone needs God. Another barrier. I've heard people say, well, there's really just too much to give up. Well, it is true that when we respond to Jesus' invitation to, to come back to God, that he may put his finger on something, and we probably know it's wrong, and we probably know we need to give it up if we want to fully enter into that loving, joyful relationship. I mean, that many of us are like. We, we know when God puts his finger on something. And so it is true that there may be something we have to give up. But remember that 
God loves us and he only asks us to give up that which is either unhealthy or unwise for us. In that sense, it may hold us captive to not fully experience the freedom and love that he intends for us. And so if we experience the divine discipline, it's for our good. Still others may say, well, I've I've been too bad or I'm not good enough. Truth is, friends, none of us are good enough. None of us do enough stuff. We can't ever earn our way back into God's favor. That's the whole point of Jesus coming in the first advent, is he did what we can't do. So no, you're not good enough, and you'll never do enough, because that's the point. He did what we cannot do. He makes it possible for God to actually accept us just the way we are. He takes the wrath of the Father and nails it to his cross. God's not mad at you anymore. He's not shaking his finger at you. He made it possible for God to welcome us back. Whatever we've done, no matter who we are, no matter what kind of mess we've made with our life. That's the beauty of the Advent. Still others say, yeah, Ben, but there's got to be a catch. You know, that's understandable because, you know, in America today, there's just no free lunch, right? Well, there is in the gospel. You know, there are no strings attached. There's no fine print in the contract. It's just come as you are. You'll be loved. It's just that simple. Now, we struggle with thinking that, yeah, but we have to do something. You know, and that's just that part of inside of us that wants to take credit for everything we do in life. And so I, I, I get that. I'm, I'm, that, I'm wired that way. I, I, I want to like somehow feel like I've earned it, like, 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 like I merit it somehow and through my good works and my effort that Jesus is pleased with me, and so therefore I keep what he gives as a free gift in the first place. Well, that's all mixed up thinking. That, that's, that's unbiblical thinking. You don't do, do, do anything to keep the free gift that God gives you. It's free. It has nothing to do with how bad you were or how good you've been or will be or anything in between or how bad you'll be in the future or how good you'll be in the future. It's free. There's no strings attached. That's the scandal of the gospel in turning to trust him there isn't anything you can do to claim it certainly you don't deserve it and you can't ever earn it that's the beauty and power still others say yeah ben but uh you know i could just never keep up with it well that's right no one can because you can't pay back what you couldn't earn in the first place And so the truth is God intended us to live in relationship with him, not on the merit of our own strength or willpower, but by the glorious indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And when we turn to trust Jesus, he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's way of guaranteeing that everything he's promised is coming your way. It's like a down payment. When you make a down payment on an automobile or a house or an apartment, it's a pledge that you're good for the rest of the money is really what it boils down to. You say, my word is good. I'm giving you this token that everything that I promise is going to come. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit is. It's God's deposit in you that everything he's promised is coming because you know what? You're not good enough on your own to ever work hard enough to get it. So, yeah, the point that you couldn't ever keep it up, that's right. No one can. Then lastly, there's this last barrier that's probably the most common, and it goes like this. Well, 
I'll do it later. Maybe you're like that, or you were like that, or know people like that. It's perhaps the most common barrier. I know it's probably true, and I know I need to get around to it, but I'll do it later. Well, it's just been my experience that the longer we wait, the harder it is to say yes to Jesus and his welcome back to the Father. And frankly, we never know when we'll receive another opportunity because we don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. So friends, what we're discovering is that one of the greatest Christmas gifts is God's love, his welcome back to the Father. I love how the Apostle Paul summarizes this in both a a, a wonderful exclamation of what we've received as well as our responsibility as Christ followers to share it with others in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 19 to 20. I'll close with this. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Jesus loves you. He continues to pursue us and welcome us all back into relationship with the living God. Lord, we're humbled and grateful at the true message of the incarnation, that you're not holding our sins against us, but Lord, rather you are welcoming us, all men, women, and children of every age and every culture, back into relationship with you. It's to you we belong, and it's to you we return. Thanks for your invitation. Thanks for the beauty and power of this love story in Advent. I pray, God, that today we would experience the love of Christ, Ephesians 3.19, in a richer, fuller, more powerful dimension. Every person here, Lord, every person in Vineyard Kids in the room next door, that we would experience your love. And now as we return our thanks and praise to you by the giving of these gifts and the offering and the lifting of our hearts and song, may they be tokens, Lord, that we want our lives to count for you and that we love you in your name. Amen.